Good morning. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We'll be there this morning. If you are using the Pew Bible, that's page 939. As you're turning in there, I would just like to take this opportunity to express my great joy to be with you this morning and how excited I am to be here to bring to you God's Word. It's a wonderful blessing that I have and I'm very thankful for this opportunity. So please stand with me as we read from God's Word. Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What do we know about God's word? Join me in prayer. Father, as we continue worshiping you this morning, we now turn to your word. Lord, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to us, that you would enlighten our minds, that you would inflame our hearts, that you would move our feet. Lord, that you would be glorified in all that is said and all that is done. Lord, we come to you needy. We do not have anything to bring but we ask these things for the sake of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Our passage this morning is from the book of Romans. And I'm not sure I need to tell you this, but for what it's worth, Romans is one of the most important books throughout church history. When the church has felt threatened by some new teaching, or perhaps when it's been confused by what to believe in light of competing ideologies or beliefs, or perhaps even both, the church has turned back to the scriptures for clarity, and in particular to the book of Romans. One noted commentator states the importance of Romans this way. He writes, One can almost write the history of Christian theology by surveying the way in which Romans has been interpreted. And he's right, of course. As one example, think with me of how an Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, and his reading and rereading of the book of Romans sparked the Protestant Reformation. So when we turn to Romans this morning, we do so with a holy reverence. Because we know what God has done through this book throughout history. And we pray he will continue to do even here in McKinney, Texas. This brings us to our passage this morning. Romans 1, 16 and 17 is found at the end of Paul's introduction to the letter. We know from verse 7 that Paul is writing this letter to believers in Rome which is the capital city of the Roman Empire. Paul is most likely writing around the year 55 AD, a mere 25 years or so after the death of Jesus. Now, this is important to keep in mind since Romans, as we'll see, is all about the gospel of God. 
the good news about Jesus and what he came to do for sinners. The very same gospel that Jesus himself came to preach. There's a very close connection, in other words, between what Jesus taught and what Paul teaches here in this letter. But you may be asking, well, how do we know that the letter of Romans is fundamentally about the gospel? Well, there are at least two clues to this. First, look at verse 1 of chapter 1 with me. In this verse, Paul makes clear to his readers that his apostolic mission is to preach the gospel of God. Here's what he says, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. At the outset of this letter, in other words, Paul is eager to set forth his apostolic calling and he's eager to let his readers know that his main mission, his main focus is the gospel. The second way that we know Romans is fundamentally about the gospel is found in verses 16 and 17. Our passage this morning. These two verses form what we could call the the thesis statement of the letter of Romans. And it's what I want to focus on this morning. In our passage, which I hope to illustrate, it's all about the gospel of Jesus. Paul sets forth in clear but concise terms what this letter of Romans is all about. In other words, if, if we could take a theological and exegetical microscope, and we could, we could zoom in on these two verses, we would see the entirety of Romans unfolding before our eyes. So what exactly is the thesis of Romans? What, what is Romans really all about? And the answer to this question is the outline to our morning's message this morning. The overarching point of Romans is that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because one, it's the power of God, two, it's for the people of God, and three, it gives the provision from God. Let me say that again. The overarching point of Romans What we have here before us in Romans 1, 16 and 17 is that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God, it's for the people of God, and it brings the provision from God. Let's look at each of these points in turn. Point one, the power of God. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. But how is the gospel the power of God? Well, first off, let's look here. The the Greek word that Paul uses here for power is the Greek word dunamis. And as I've had the privilege to meet a few of you, I've I've come to learn that a few of you are are in the process of learning Greek. So here's a helpful way that I remember that the Greek word for power is dunamis. It sounds like our English word dynamite. And dynamite is a powerful thing when you light it and it goes boom. So dunamis here is, is the word that Paul uses And it means the ability to function in a particular way. In other words, Paul is noting that the gospel is the thing that God uses to do something particular. And we'll see shortly what that thing is particular that God does through the gospel. But I want us to stop here for a moment to highlight the fact that the gospel, according to Paul, 
isn't merely something that is preached or proclaimed or shared. Don't misunderstand me. For sure it is that. But the gospel is far more than that. The gospel is the very means by which God uses to bring about a change in the hearts and minds of sinners. Think of a few examples of this. Acts chapter 9, we have the conversion of Saul. He is riding in to the city to persecute the church of the living God. And on his way in, he has a powerful encounter with the risen Christ. He is knocked to the ground. And he hears this message, this good news. And he is changed from somebody who is a persecutor of the church to the very one who is writing this letter for us. Or think with me of another example. In Acts chapter 8, if you have your Bible, keep your finger in Romans chapter 1, but, but flip over to Romans chapter 8. And here we have another example of how this gospel that is proclaimed is powerful. In Acts chapter 8, we see in verse 4 and following, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. He preached the gospel, in other words. Verse 6, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who heard, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This, this gospel proclamation was so powerful that unclean spirits fled from its presence. And those who were lame and could not walk stood up and walked. The gospel itself is powerful to change the hearts and minds of people. We don't need necessarily clever words or sophisticated arguments to bring people to the gospel, to bring people to Christ. All we need is to preach the gospel and unleash the power that is there in the gospel. Some have used this illustration to kind of talk about how we do this. And it's said before that, that we defend the gospel the same way that we defend a roaring lion. We let it out of its cage. We unleash the power that the gospel has. Remember that the gospel is powerful. So proclaim this good news and leave the results to God. The word of our Lord never returns to him void. This is one reason why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel of God. Because it is the powerful message to do what God intends for it to do. But what exactly does God intend the gospel to do? Well, Paul doesn't leave us wondering about the answer to this vital question. Look back at verse 16. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the power of God is revealed for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel, in other words, is the powerful instrument that God uses to save his people. 
And this really is the essence of the Christian message. If if we were to boil down Christianity to, to one sentence, it would be something like, God saves his people. This is the good news that we have. And Paul goes on in Romans to make clear that we are saved in a very real sense from the very wrath of God himself. Look at the very next verse after our passage, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There is a way, this is the good news, there is a way for those who have offended and committed high treason against the king of the universe. There is a way for them to escape the coming wrath. We have a way out. The marvelous thing about the Gospels, brothers and sisters, is that the God we have committed high treason against is the very same God who provides a way for us to be saved. And he provides a message that is powerful to do what God intends for it to do. Summarizing verse 16, one commentator puts it this way. What Paul is saying here is that the gospel is God's effective power, active in the world of men to bring about deliverance from his wrath in the final judgment. The power of God is one reason Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. The second reason that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel is because it's for the people of God. Look back with me at the end of verse 16. Paul says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This phrase clarifies what Paul just said about everyone who believes. All the people that believe in the gospel are made up of either Jews or Gentiles or Greeks as he uses here. Paul's main thrust in bringing this up is that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. For the Jews and the Gentiles. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for both believing Jews and believing Greeks, believing Gentiles. There is no ethnic hierarchy when it comes to the gospel. We are all on the same ground. But you might be asking, well, wait a minute. If we're all on the same ground, if, 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 if we're all equal in front of the gospel, so why does Paul indicate that the gospel is to the Jew first? Well, that's a good question. Commentators kind of disagree about what this firstness means here in Romans chapter 1. But, but I think that the, the simplest and best way to understand it is temporally. That is, in terms of time. That is, the Jewish people were preached the gospel in the Old Testament. They had the gospel first. Thinking of Genesis 3.15 as a way of example. They were preached the gospel in the Old Testament. They were told that the head of the serpent would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And we go throughout the Old Testament and we see the unfolding of this gospel message and who the Messiah would be, what he would come to do. Also, I think Paul has in mind here 
that it was his practice when he was preaching the gospel, he would go to the Jew first. Right? From Acts, we know that when Paul would go into a new city, the first place he would go is he would go into the synagogue and he would reason with them from the scriptures and he would talk to them about the Messiah, about Christ. Then, once they had rejected him and once they had rejected the gospel, a sadly common response that we see in the book of Acts, he would go and preach to the Gentiles. Acts 17 has a great example of this. Verse 2 of Acts 17 starts with, And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them. That is, he reasoned with the Jews from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And then later on in that same chapter of Acts, we see that Paul goes into Athens to preach the gospel to those who were there to preach to the Gentiles. There's no particular reason to understand first here in Romans chapter 1 as some sort of preeminence or preeminence of the Jewish people. Paul makes this same point elsewhere in Galatians chapter 3. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heir according to the promise. So in other words, in Galatians 3, Paul makes it clear that everyone who believes is the offspring of Abraham. In other words, they they get all the blessings and all the promises given in the Old Testament. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you will inherit all the blessings of God. Paul's point is simply this. The foot of the cross is level. We are all on the same footing. If you're sitting here today and thinking to yourself, yeah, I I hear what you're saying. I, I, I hear what Paul is saying. That the gospel is for everyone, but you, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I did last night. You don't know what I did yesterday, last week, last month, last year. And you're right. I, I don't know what you did. But I do know someone who does know. And he says that the gospel is for everyone who believes No one is outside of the reach of the gospel. This is another reason why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Because it's the same consistent message that he preaches to both Jews and Gentiles. That in the gospel, everyone who believes can be saved from the coming wrath. But that leaves the lingering question. Okay, I'm with you so far. The gospel is a powerful message that brings about salvation. But, but how does it do that? How is it that we can be saved from a holy God? Well, the answer to this question is found in our third point this morning. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the provision from God. Verse 17, in other words, is intended to give us the answer to this question. Look back with me. At verse 17, Paul says, For in it, that is, in the gospel, 
The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's answer to how we are to escape the coming wrath is found in this phrase, the righteousness of God. If you have an NIV translation in front of you this morning, it might say the righteousness from God. And that is a key to how we're going to understand this phrase. So in order to understand how it is we can escape the wrath of God, we need to unpack, we need to pull back the layers of the onion, as it were, to understand this phrase, the righteousness from God, the righteousness of God. Even though there is a lot of debate in the literature about when you read on Romans what this phrase means, I think there is little doubt that it can only refer to the righteous status that God gives or credits or the theological term that they use is imputes to those who believe. Let me explain how this is the case. But before we can understand the solution rightly, we first need to understand the exact nature of the problem. In Romans chapter 1 and on into chapter 2 and 3, Paul uses courtroom language. He is drawing upon courtroom imagery. Just like if I were to, to stand up here today and use words like gavel, verdict, jury, you would immediately start to picture a courtroom in your mind. Because those are terms that are associated with a courtroom. Paul in the first part of Romans, is using that courtroom language, words like impute, righteousness, justification, just to name a few. These are all courtroom or, or legal terms. In Paul's way of framing this discussion, in other words, he is depicting a courtroom. And in this courtroom, God is sitting as judge on the bench. And we, you and I, are the defendants. In the rest of chapter 1 and on into chapter 3, Paul lays out the evidence piled up against us. The evidence against both Jews and Gentiles. And he concludes his case with these words from Romans chapter 3. None is righteous. No, not one. He makes his case that before God's holy standard, none of us measure up. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. God, in other words, isn't angry at us for no reason. God's wrath by, abides on us for all the right reasons. So what does this have to do with our passage this morning, with, with God's wrath and this courtroom stuff? Well, in short, everything. You see... It is this problem of the wrath of God and its solution that Paul is so eager to proclaim. Remember, Paul was once a person who stoned Christians to death. This is not an abstract theological pie-in-the-sky problem for the Apostle Paul. He is trying to figure out how is it that I can go from somebody who was about to murder Christians to somebody who can inherit everything through Christ. How does that work? How can that happen? This is a real problem for the Apostle Paul. And if you look into your hearts this morning, truthfully, you'll see this isn't a problem just for Paul. 
It's a problem for you. It's a problem for me. And it's this problem that Paul is eager to give the solution to. The righteousness that God gives in the gospel is the answer to this problem. But how exactly does that work? Well, think back with me about this courtroom that Paul is depicting. There's a judge on the bench, and he is a good judge. He isn't simply going to look at a guilty person and say, eh, not guilty. If a judge did that today, if there was somebody who was guilty and they were let off, we would demand that they be removed from the bench because they are unjust. In order for God to give us the verdict of not guilty, we need to be, at least legally speaking, not guilty. This is why the righteousness that God gives us in the gospel, the righteousness that God gives us in Christ is so vital. Look back with me at our text. At the end here, Paul says, the righteous person shall live by faith. Now, I added the word person there to, to illustrate what we're talking about here. Paul's saying that, the, that a person can be righteous. But, but wait a minute. You just told me that at chapter 3, he goes on to say no one is righteous. How is it that the righteous person can live by faith, yet no one is righteous? This is what theologians refer to as an alien righteousness. Not because it's from Mars or outer space or has anything to do with little green men. But because the righteousness that the person has in Romans 1.17 is not their own righteousness. It's a righteousness that's been given to them by another just as the power of God from verse 16 doesn't stay with God, but is poured out and works mightily in the world. And, and just like the wrath of God in verse 18 doesn't stay with God, but is poured out on deserving sinners, so too the righteousness of God does not stay with him, but is freely given to those who believe. So think back with me of the courtroom. The judge is about to pronounce that you are guilty. But before the sentence is rendered, the judge's own son bursts into the courtroom with blood on his hands, with blood flowing from the crown on his head. And he says to the judge, to his own father, wait, before you give the sentence, this person, they're with me. I paid their sentence. Tetelestai, paid in full. And he takes off his white robes and he puts them on you. The son of the judge took your unrighteousness upon himself and gave you his perfect record of law keeping in the eyes of the court. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians that because of God, we are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. He became for us righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, because it sets forth this wonderful and gracious gift 
of God's own righteousness given to people who not only do not deserve it, but we have done things to undeserve it. Let me conclude. Remember back at the beginning of this morning's message when I talked about an Augustinian monk and his reading and rereading of Romans. I was speaking of, of Martin Luther, as you remember. And it was Martin Luther, as, as he was struggling during his day, of how is it that I can be right before God when, when I'm trying to do all these things to be right and I just don't live up. And he was reading these words here in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. And he began to realize that our standing before God does not depend on what we do as believers. For if it did, we would never measure up no matter how many penance, prayers, gifts, as many times as we would want to do good works, we would never do enough. And he began to realize that what Paul is saying here in Romans is that we are to stop working for God's favor and start resting in what Christ has done for us. Brothers and sisters, will you this morning with Paul stop working for your standing before God and start resting in what God has already done for you in Christ. All you need to do is look to his son with faith and repentance and receive his gospel, receive this good news that he has done all that can be done. He has done everything for you, including living a life of perfect obedience so that when God sees you, he sees the perfect obedience of his son. This is why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is why you and I cannot be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the people of God which brings a provision from God. Let me conclude with the words of one of my favorite hymns that is familiar to many of you, I am sure. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Please join me in prayer. Father, we are so thankful for the blood of Jesus. We are thankful that you have a powerful message that is able to accomplish what you, from all eternity, have set forth to be done. Lord, we are thankful that we can rest knowing that our standing before you does not depend on what we do, but depends wholly upon what your Son has done for us. Help us to leave here today with this truth rooted deeply in our hearts, that this truth would move us, Father, to acts of faith, to repentance, and that good works would flow from us, Lord. We are thankful for all that you do for us.
We ask all this because of your son Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.